Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. So, I will give little introductions. When you do things like this, people send you, quite rightly, long CVs that list everything that these two fine people have done. But I'm sure that in coming here this evening, you know that Michael Spence is the Vice-Chancellor of Sydney University, and you know about his academic career, so I'm not going to embarrass him by listing all of his awards and so on. The key thing about Michael Spence is that he is, of course, in relation to this evening and this uh, public ideas event, he is a male champion of change. He's also someone who is more than capable of disruptive change in his life. You may know that he decided to learn Mandarin as an adult and managed to get so proficient that he thinks he can make jokes in Mandarin. And since I'm at lesson two of my course in Mandarin for my trip to China, I can say that's deeply impressive. But Michael is someone who understands change and has been an extraordinary leader in this field. Sitting next to Michael, Liz Broderick. Again, I won't list all her extraordinary achievements. She's just back from the UN, so I hope we get to hear, in, in, in her new role in the UN, I hope we get to hear some of her very recent experiences um, during that stay in New York and the very extraordinary speech that she gave there, which I recommend you have a look at later. Liz, too, is someone, when she left the Human Rights Commission, amongst the many glowing tributes that were paid to this extraordinary courageous woman, and her courage was one of the things that was referred to, um, she was also thanked by the people she worked with for being so brave in disrupting the status quo. But at the same time, Liz Broderick has also been described as a stealth fighter, and I think it's not a bad description for Liz, even if it has a slightly warlike ring to it, and that's because a stealth fighter has to manoeuvre past the heat, the sound, and the emissions of its opponents in order to be successful. And that does sound to me a lot like Liz Broderick's impeccably handled management of those shouty people who are in such loud opposition to her determination to bring us to a more gender equal world. Um, Unlike Tina McQueen, I don't know if all of you saw her this week, (laughs) shot to infamy in the political sphere. Liz didn't meet Donald Trump at a beauty pageant, finding him (laughs) neither racist nor sexist. But what she met in New York was the more cogent reality of shifts in US policy towards the issue of women's rights around the world. And I hope we're going to hear a little bit about that. So you know that um, Michael Spence has a distinguished career as a legal academic amongst many other things. Liz began her career as a lawyer. So my simple job this evening with two lawyers after a fashion is to keep them off the straight and narrow and on the bumpy path to progress. So join me in welcoming these two generous, excellent people to the stage. <laughs> I'm going too fast. I promise that these two didn't speak too fast, but maybe I did. So <laughs> Now, I wanted to start with where we are right now. Um, if I could. So we're in March 2019, we know that. It's two years since the birth of the hashtag MeToo, coinciding with the rise of the Time's Up movement in the United States, which Donald Trump's Svengali Steve Bannon described as the most potent force in American politics. Today, just today, Graham Samuel said we needed a nuclear bomb to break down, blast down the walls of the uh, female directors clubs in Sydney, uh, in, yes, in Sydney, in, in Australian business. So we've got nuclear bombs breaking down walls of women, female directors clubs, that's just today. There's a lot going on, but both of you in recent, recent days and weeks have talked about the backlash against the move for gender equality. So Michael, if I could start with you, and may I call you Michael? Yeah, please do. Thank you. Get that sorted. You've talked about the backlash against gender equality. What do you mean and where do you see it? So we have an academic, Pippa Norris, um, uh, who may be here, who teaches both here and at Harvard, who is a joint appointment between our two institutions. She's done really interesting work on what it is that was behind Brexit, what it is behind Trump, what it is that is behind the rise of um, authoritarian populists in so many parts of the world. And the, the common narrative, of course, has to do with 
um, communities that are in some way economically disadvantaged or have seen their living standards going backwards. Um, but in fact, many people who've done very well indeed voted for Trump and voted mm. for Brexit. Um, and the, the, if, if with her electoral analysis, the, the most plausible, I think, reading of what's going on in the global context is actually that there is a real culture war going on um, and that there is a certain backlash against progressive values um, in the West at the moment. And we're seeing that on our um, university campus. Um, we're seeing, um, I could tell you a, 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 a tedious and frightening story about the escapades of Bettina Arndt on our campus. Um, we're seeing an extremity of language in response to change of a kind that I have not seen in my career at universities. And I think the backlash is quite visceral. Liz, you talked about at the United Nations recent session, you praised Alan Joyce from Qantas, his presentation at that event, but you also said after that that backlash would occur and that we must manage the fear. So picking up on what Michael's saying about the visceral nature of that backlash, what do you mean by managing the fear? Look, I couldn't agree more with what Michael said because we're seeing backlash not just here at Sydney Uni and across Australia, it is a global phenomenon. And I couldn't agree more that this is about a fear of progressive values or what is seen as Western democratic values um, uh, in different parts of the world. And I think at the heart of that fear, what do people fear? They fear an undermining of some of the key institutions in nations. And under, they, they fear that gender equality, if I bring it back to the gender equality issues, that gender equality and women's rights will undermine the family. That if women have equal power in the family, that that will undermine the institution of family, rather than seeing that if women have equal rights in the family, if women have a right to work outside the family, it actually builds economic resilience and is indeed protective of a family. And in what sense the family as opposed to the persona of the male, which is what we hear about more often in relation to fear? Yeah, well, it's very much, I suppose, about the transfer of power in nations, in organisations, from men to women as well. So there's no question that that's the fear, uh, a second fear, because if you look at um, the fear uh, also about the fear in government, the fear of the church, um, all those key institutions which have been created by men, for men and are largely run by men, what we see when we're uh, moving towards a more gender-equal world we see that that power then starts to be redistributed between men and women. And we can say, well, we need this to happen in a very, um, you know, peaceful and, and, um, and I absolutely believe dignified and respectful way we need to move forward with change. But in many um, nations, because of a fear, because of a rhetoric and the things that you're talking about, this is happening in a very destructive manner. And look, can I just give you a couple of examples? I mean, just last week in Iran, we saw a young woman was sentenced to 38 years imprisonment and 148 lashes. What was her crime? Her crime was that she was one of the top human rights lawyers in that nation and she acted for a group of women who took their hijabs off in public. I mean, today in Saudi Arabia, there's a cohort of women's human rights defenders who actually led the campaign to get women the right to drive. They're incarcerated, they're being tortured as we speak. I mean, I was in the UN in New York last week. I met with delegations of New York-based NGOs. What did they tell me about what's happening in the, U uh, in the United States at America, uh, of America at the minute? One of the representatives said, she said, look, Liz, in the last 12 months, there's been 68 new pieces of law introduced in this nation which restrict women's rights to reproductive health and abortion. This is in the United States. And, Liz, um, how, and I how, could go on with any number of examples. Because you've just That's come, what it looks like. Because you've just come back from the, U, from the UN, how does that move, um, those moves against reproductive rights mm. work 
in, a, in the UN setting? What were you able to observe while you were there? What I'm able Does it to have an effect or is it an American no, local No, it issue? absolutely has an effect because last week was what they call the Commission on the Status of Women. It's the largest gender equality meeting that the UN hosts every year. And last week, it was the largest meeting they'd ever had because more human rights defenders from across the world decided that this was the moment that they would take their concerns to the United Nations. So that was one indicator of where we're at, just the scale of a meeting. The other indicator was that we started to see the US vote with non-traditional um, nations like Russia, like Turkey, like Egypt. We haven't seen that geopolitical alignment before. And when you look at what they're voting against, it's women's access to reproductive rights and health. So if you had to look at the most controversial issue in the global um, human rights agenda today, it would be women's um, reproductive rights. That is probably the most um, uh, controversial, together with um, LGBTIQ rights. There's still so many nations that just don't, um, you know, have terrible consequences. So, Michael, you in that area. That's on a global scale. You say that you've seen it even here at the university and you talk about the visceral nature of the backlash. What happens when people see that visceral backlash? Is it making people more cowed and is it in danger of sucking from the importance of this movement, its bravery and courage to mobilise together for change? No, I think it's... Um much more concerning than that, particularly in the university community. Um, so, I mean, if, if I might step back from the yep. question for a minute, um, we are undoubtedly ground zero in the culture wars. You know, something can um, happen at the University of Sydney and be all over the Australian press within five minutes that if it happened somewhere else, um, nobody would notice. Um, let me tell you... Why is that? Because um, we're the most marvellous university in Australia, crucible ideas, all that sort of thing. Um, and, but what we are... It's a bastion what, issue too, though, what, isn't it? It's it a is, part, it's, and it's the history of the last few years. Um, what we're seeing is... Um, uh, what we're seeing in the culture wars is a loss of the ability to disagree respectfully mm. and well. So one of the things that we've built into our new um, uh, curriculum is a, um, a conception of cultural competence, you know, that, that you might have different views about, for example, um, the status of the fetus and um, women's reproductive rights. But you ought to be able to have that conversation in a political system that allows for difference mm. and that allows for respectful dialogue about those issues across, um, across divides. What we're seeing even in university communities is a lot more shouting, a lot more sloganeering. So the backlash takes the form not necessarily of people retreating, but of a certain sort of fear, I think it's right, a panic on both sides, and therefore people shouting past one another. And for me, the function of a university in that is to say, hang on, hang on, hang on, we've got to be capable in a pluralist community of living together with different visions of the good. That's got to require, at minimum, that I can try and inhabit your worldview and understand why you think the things you think um, and, 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 and why you might make some of the assumptions you make, um, but also claim the right to say, no, I don't think that's how um, X or Y or Z should go. And, and in the university setting, how's it going? Um, so in the university setting, um, uh, this whole notion of disagreeing well is something that we've been working on very consciously, and I think actually we're doing better. But we are a um, we are a locus for this argument nationally. I mean, I'll tell you the Bettina Arndt story really quickly because it's just it's at one level amusing and at another level terrifying. So Bettina Arndt wants to. Um, come and give a lecture on the fake rape crisis um, in universities. So she asked the university's liberal club. The university's liberal club invite her. Um, they ask for us for additional security. We charge them $375, which we do for all student clubs that ask for additional security of the left and of the right. We do that so we don't have to make invidious choices about who to subsidise. That goes all around the country um, and into the federal parliament about us taxing free speech. Nevertheless, she comes. Um, the, um, there is a protest. There's no damage to personal property. She gives her 
um, lecture with with um, her opinions with which I strongly disagree, but strongly respect her right to, um, as an invited by students, to give these to, to, to do this particular thing. Um, there is a um, within uh, uh, she brings a complaint against the student protesters, puts their names on her Facebook page. There's all this bile then that her supporters put out of things like, I hope there's a fake race, uh, there's a rape crisis on campus, otherwise X wouldn't be able to get an insert an expletive. Just really um, horrible stuff. They have to take their names off the, um, the electoral rolls. There's then in the Senate, not the Senate of the University of Sydney, but the Senate of the Parliament of the Commonwealth of Australia, a discussion about the Batunarant affair at the University of Sydney and why we're, and the Teaching Education Quality Standards Authority is um, commissioned at taxpayer expense to investigate the state of free speech at the University of Sydney. This leads to a national thing led by the, and it's all because of this, this screaming conversation that we're having. And I think unless on issues like gender, we can say, actually, um, we're not going to back down, but we're going to keep going and we're going to keep making the case calmly, rationally, well, and you can shout all you want, but we're not going to give up. We're not going to make the kind of progress we need to make. So we'll come back to your case in just a moment, but just to stay with this, not just the shouty space, but the the well, in some cases, well-argued space. He's a controversial figure, but you'll all know Jordan Peterson, perhaps more than any other commentator. He has successfully harnessed the fear that um, you both talked about. Thousands of people attend his speeches, millions more watch his presentations on YouTube. He says that the differences between men and women are ineradicable and can only be changed through tyranny. So how much is, is it the case that we have in some ways that you have failed to sell your argument to a lot of people, that this argument is gaining so much traction through people like Jordan Peterson and his ideas? So the question is, is it gaining so much traction? You know, remember, um, for example, um, how many people voted um, uh, um, uh, progressively in the recent um, referendum? Um, it, uh, the, um, the Jordan Petersons are very loud, but I think part of the reason that they're becoming shrill is that they sense that they don't necessarily have a stronghold on the culture. Um, and I, I agree with that position. I mean, I, I think... Having said that, a lot of young men that I meet, and that's one of the great things about my work, I get to engage with young men as well, they do listen to him and they listen to him on some of the things that he says where I think he's actually quite strong on some things. It's on this issue that I just very much disagree with him and I think um, what we have to do is speak in a language that speaks to young men um, and you know, there, it's great to see Tim Winton and people like there at that actually out there speaking to young men because what we know on gender equality is it's not a women's issue. Mm. It's a key social, you know, um, economic issue. We need the engagement of men and particularly young men. So and Look, you've got, a you've got a pretty mixed crowd this evening, fantastic. which is a huge credit really to the great. university and to all of you because too many of these debates, as we know, historically have happened in front of largely female gatherings. Yeah. But you're right, Jordan Peterson does speak to a community of men. Is there anything wrong with the language or the nature of the argument that it has been run to this point in terms of gender equality that has excluded people, done anything to contribute to that sense of fear that he has harnessed, whether correctly or incorrectly, honestly or dishonestly, that's not, we're not here to judge what he says. Some of the arguments are good, but have we failed in some ways to include that we have bludgeoned rather than nudge, that we have used language that excludes? Look, maybe we have. I mean, I tend to think that change happens on a continuum and you need a whole lot of actors to create change. So you need the very noisy, really radical 
agents of change. You need those who work more within the system, and that's where I see my work. Yeah. I work within the system to try and stretch it out as much as I can. So every one of us has a place on the continuum of change. Um, but in terms of engagement, I do think that in many men's minds, gender equality is seen as women's issue, women's business, and maybe we as women have actually said, you know, that's how it needs to be. And I know just if I come back to the male champions of change strategy, mm. which I hope we'll talk about, it still is a very controversial strategy. And part of a reason for that is that, well, wait a tick, we don't need women, men speaking for women which the male champions don't, but also this is our business, this is women's business. And my view is it's the collective action of women that's got us the rights that we have, not just in Australia, but across the world today. Without, you know, the suffragettes, the second wave feminists and everyone else, we wouldn't be able to have the basic rights that we have. But if I look to the future, I'm not prepared to continue to wait. And if we want an accelerant, I believe that we have to work with power. And the fact is men hold power in every nation in the world, in every organisation. So why wouldn't we work with good, decent men? Um, it's not a zero-sum game. It's men and women working together to create a gender-equal future. And that most definitely includes young men. Now, so much of the debate um, around this issue is precisely around the notion of those accelerants. What is an acceptable level or quantity of accelerant that you can apply to a social issue like gender equality? Their argument from the other side is that um, it should be equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome, that the former will provide the, will provide the outcome. Um, how do you, Michael, I'll ask this to you, how do you protect merit while changing gender balance? Um, so I don't think those two... Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be able to say at the moment that we have um, uh, more than 50% women on the Senate, on the university executive and on the university's academic board. And I don't think that decision-making in that in each of those groups has ever been stronger. And... That's not surprising because all the social science demonstrates that mixed gender groups make better decisions, um, weigh risk better, um, um, take risk more appropriately, um, just perform better on all the indices of effectiveness. So I think the 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 merit um, um, uh, uh, the, the 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 sort of merit equality dichotomy um, is simply a false one. Um, and if you like, you might say, well, in environments that traditionally excluded women, inevitably, um, they excluded 51 or whatever it is percent of the population um, from the consideration, from the merit consideration. And therefore, if we assume as a given the sort of standard distribution of talent in the human population, they're not looking at choosing from a particularly meritorious point. So how much accelerant do you want? How much, how much do you want to change the way that um, people access tertiary education, access jobs, graduate employment? How much accelerant do you think society wants to apply to change the current gender balance? So I think, um, so obviously the big question there is um, targets or quotas. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, I think targets are a great start. Um, I think there are contexts in which targets don't work um, and you may need a quota. Um, but my experience is that if you continually put the numbers in front of people um, and you continually send people back to look again for the talent that they say is not there, um, things do sort themselves out. Um, the it sounds, one when you say sort them things out, it's, it's, it, it makes it sound as if it is... An, it is inevitable and that it doesn't need to be controlled once you've made that important No, 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 you step. have to do it quite subconsciously. So um, gender is kind of interesting because we're at a particular point in that argument. Um, I am um, equally passionate about, if not slightly more personally passionate about, um, making Australia generally, a, genuinely a multicultural and not mm. merely a, um, a society, not merely one of parallel monocultures. And that's really interesting because 25% of... Um, uh, uh, 25% of Australians are of non-European ethnicity, 
but less than 2% of people in senior leadership positions of one kind or another broadly defined across government, across the private sector and across um, universities. And that even though now we know that since at least the 1970s, the high school system and the universities have been turning out very, very bright people, particularly of East Asian ethnicity, mm. who then just um, disappear. You know, as one person, HR person at a bank said to me, because they realise Australia is not a place for East Asians, so they go off to London or um, New York or, um, or, or Hong Kong. And that's interesting because I think we are at the point in the gender conversation where with targets, with pushing, with cajoling in an institution, you can make a difference. Um, in the um, cultural and linguistic diversity position, mm. we're a million miles behind that. And there, there's an interesting question about whether or not you might not need quotas for a kickstart. So I think it's, it's, it, it's about the right response for the right moment in the right conversation. Liz, you, you, you raised um, male champions of change, and we've already said that Michael is one of those. Um, in your recent um, study of how, how the numbers have gone over the last nearly 10 years now, there was one figure that stood out, which was in terms of graduate employment, that I think it was only that it was 54% of the companies that are part of the group had had achieved full equality in terms of graduate employment. And I don't know how many people in this room are yet to get their first graduate employment. You might already be home and hosed, I hope so. Why is that proving so stubborn? It's proving stubborn because that includes the military, the police, the intelligence agencies and whatever. So having said that, the figure that I'm looking at is the promotion figure and what it shows that nearly 80% of male champions of change organisations in those organisations, 80% of them, women are promoted at above their representation level, which I think is important. But of course, um, recruitment is so very important. And what we know from the data is actually women are doing pretty well in an educational setting. Now, there are some exceptions, and I particularly um, note the situation for my Indigenous sisters. So, but, um, but by and large, women are doing and outperforming men on educational attainment. But that's not translating into um, strong progress within the workplace, essentially, particularly at the most senior level. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the study is now, but I know a few years ago when I looked at it, there were more men named Peter. I think it was Peter. Maybe yes, it was Andrew Peter, or Peter, David. Peter, it was Peter. I'm not sure. Yep, Peter. Peter. It was Peter. Um, as CEOs of ASX 200 mm. companies than there were women. I mean, mm. I don't even know what that is but I know I don't think I like it. Um, so, you know, when we look at women's progression and particularly also in STEM fields and whatever, they are significantly underrepresented, particularly given the level of educational attainment. So coming back to your question about accelerant and intentionality, mm -hmm. we absolutely have to be intentional because if we don't actively and intentionally include women, the system will unintentionally exclude them. And for all the reasons that the system by and large has been invented by men for men and is largely run by men. But I absolutely agree that the push on gender hasn't lifted all women equally. And I would say that particularly in relation to culturally and linguistically diverse women. Because even if I look at this few number of women, although we're at about 30% now on, on ASEC 200 boards, uh, but in the C-suite it'd be less than that, but you're still not seeing the numbers of culturally and linguistically diverse women mm -hmm. that we should be seeing given the proportion that they make up in Australia. So, so I'd, I'd like to bring the backlash thing and that, um, that point that Liz is making about um, uh, intentional change and the role of men in this um, uh, together in relation to something that we're trying to mm -hmm. do at the university. So um, one of the things about the accelerant is it always assumes that there's a problem, and the problem is the exclusion of women or the exclusion of people from cultural thing, and that you are um, working to solve this problem. But I think you need to cast, in, to include men and to make change, you need to cast the problem um, in a slightly bigger frame and a slightly different frame. So a couple of years ago, I had all my team read a book that we've been doing a lot of thinking about by Claude Steele, who is um, uh, 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 a, a social psychologist at um, Stanford. He was the um, provost of, of UCLA, whatever. He works um, not on the impact of stereotyping on the perception of performance, but on the impact of stereotyping on performance itself. 
And perhaps in his most famous experiment, um, which he's done in several places around the world and all the rest of it, he takes bright groups, um, equally able groups, as far as you can tell, and you know they're statistically large enough to vary out, put iron out the variances and all the rest of it, of mathematically able East Asian women. And if you do something before a maths test that reminds them of their gender, they do poorly on the test because everybody knows girls are bad at maths. If you do something that reminds them of their, of their ethnicity before the test, they do well because everybody knows Asians are good at, at, um, good at maths, mm. right? Mm. Now, if um, part of what we've been saying to young people, men and women, is how does the story, stories you tell about mm. yourself and about other people and how does the stories that the community tells about you or what a policeman is or what someone who works in the army is hold you back? And therefore, if you're a man, hold you back from enjoying your family in the way that you might enjoy it um, if, 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 if you are able to participate more fully um, in child rearing and in the life of the home. Or if you're a woman, how does it hold you back in the way that you think about applying for promotion or whatever? So I think part of the reframing for a new generation also has to be about the way in which we use these categories to limit the possible for each of us. And I think that also overcomes your merit problem because it then also opens up, as it were, the possibilities for all of us. Given that power is unevenly distributed and all be skewed and all the rest of it and we have to be intentional and all the rest of it, I nevertheless think there is a way of inviting men in that reduces some of the backlash and that means you don't end up having the targets, quotas, blah, 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 conversation in quite so and it's But it's way. interesting on that just also because that story that we tell ourselves and even as a nation we tell ourselves, for example, that only women make good carers, things like that, I think the external um, media, not just the media but private sector organisations and others have a big part in that story as well. And I'm just thinking of the unstereotype campaign, um, the Gillette ad, mm. some of those things. I mean, um, Unilever and a number of those big fast-moving goods companies, a couple of years ago, they launched what they called Unstereotype. And it was really a pledge that they pledged never to reinforce adverse social norms through their advertising and marketing in any nation of the mm. world. And as a result of that pledge, they've been going through different product lines, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of them, looking at how that advertising is actually promoted and the one that I'm thinking of and I don't know if anyone uses Lynx deodorant in the audience here but you used to have a Lynx ad which is you know can I pull over chicks with my big abs and whatever it's now moved to an ad which is find your magic are you the dude with the big nose the one in the wheelchair the one that likes books and um, reading and music and just as a result of that shift not only have they sold many more cans of links, and I know because my son buys many of them, um, but they have started to change the story. And I think that Gillette ad, which had a huge conversation um, across different nations, I know it did here in Australia and, and many other Western democracies as well, I think those types of initiatives are also really important in changing the story because stereotypes imprison men as much as they and imprison the, women. the reason that's important is because the action now I think, in particularly in gender, but not only, is really in shifting culture. Mm. And we have this peculiar culture. You know, I had a, um, a, a female student say to me um, a couple of years ago, she said, just does my head in. I said, why is that? She said, well, I inhabit some social environments, you know, the online environment, the thing, where it's just like Tarzan and Jane and all the imagery is kind of really brutal and every all the boys want to get great abs and drink themselves silly and all the um, women want to make themselves attractive for all the things. It's really icky. And then I go to student politics meetings and I have to say, you know, my name is Betsy and my preferred personal pronoun is she. Um, and we have this um, bizarre bifurcation so in what the do you life do about that? Because of young people at the moment. I, I think you do this, you consciously work on the culture. Mm. So it's 
you mentioned before that you have um, that you've achieved a much better, or in fact, a successful gender balance in the um, boards, in the un university boards. This is just a point about the university, just to understand how this works at the at a more micro level here at the university. How do you ensure that the things that you set out to achieve through your own personal leadership in an organisation of this size and this diversity continues down into middle level, lower level areas of the university? You sound, everything you say sounds spot on. You're, you're, we're, we're talking about a profound change to the culture, which is something we can all agree on. But functionally, on a day-to-day -day basis, what do you do about ensuring that that culture is felt throughout an organisation of this size and complexity? Um, so, you know, the business school would tell you that you set KPIs and you're conscious about it and you do all of that sort of stuff. And um, you do... But universities like community, like society more generally, we're communities of discourse. And I think part of it is you just keep talking. I'm a great believer in hypocrisy. I think you make it uncomfortable <laughs> for people to say really horrible things because mm. after a while they'll stop believing them. And you just keep saying the right thing. The problem with that, of course, is that in our institution at the moment, one of our cultural challenges, and not just in... Um, gender diversity and other areas of diversity but in our productivity and all sorts of things there is a um, uh, a geriarchy of men who have a certain amount of cultural power you know we had a 650 people town hall a couple of weeks ago um, followed the next day by a meeting at academic board where not one woman spoke asked a question and where all the questions were very, what you might call, kind of call sort of old Sydney um, questions. Um, and in academic board, I said, hang on, we haven't had any questions from women either yesterday or today. And the research shows that, you know, if a woman asks a question, it makes it more balanced conversation for the rest of the room and other people feel free to contribute. So can we, and then, an old white man asked another question and we kind of moved on. But what was really, what was encouraging and distressing was that the next day after the town hall, I got lots of emails from women, particularly younger women, who said, those old men don't speak for me and I think X and Y and Z. So that's depressing. What do you do about it? You've got one of the most vibrant culturally intellectual communities in the country and you've still got that problem here and i think the answer is it's so i was incredibly depressed and incredibly encouraged depressed because that was the context encouraged because they felt at least able to reach out to the ceo and say um uh, and say this is an issue um and i think you keep by a million actions of guerrilla warfare trying to shift the culture trying to shift the parameters of what it's um, not, of course it's a university, everybody can say whatever they like, but of the acceptable and the unacceptable forms of uh, behaviour and conduct and conversation in terms of our core values around diversity and inclusion. But just adding on to that, because Michael, I think, you know, the shadow you cast as a leader is just so very important. Mm. And I think you actually intervening and asking that question, making it potential. So that makes a difference. But how you act, what you say, what you measure, what you prioritise, they're all important things. And the other thing is vulnerability. I think what you're trying to do there is create the psychologically safe environment. Now, clearly those women who wrote to you offline, they didn't feel it was sufficiently psychologically safe to ask in that either 650 or later in the academic board a question. But they knew that you were someone who was a good person, decent enough to respond to the concerns that they have. So the question is, how do you develop that environment of shared vulnerability? I think you do it through the way you lead in terms of being vulnerable and showing that vulnerability. The question for me is, how do you get it down the layers? Because I suppose it's they're probably not looking at you when they choose not to speak. They're looking at Fred who's actually their supervisor or their supervisor's supervisor, that's what's making them not speak. If you were having a one-on-one -on -one conversation, even if it was more men than women, they would have spoken. 
out. I do think. So the question is, how do you infuse it? What I say is less intellect, more humanity. And, That's really and, what we should do. And it goes for. to do with how you pick um, leaders in the organisation. Mm. You've got to do that consciously. Um, but it also goes to do with how you model the kinds of things that you think are important. And for us, it's been also about having a very explicit values conversation. You know, as a part of our last strategy, we had a research section, an education section, and a culture section. We spent 18, uh, 12 months um, consulting on our values. I then wrote a consultation paper reflecting the consultation about our values. We then consulted on the consultation paper about our values. And the good thing is now people actually use them mm -hmm. in conversation and as standards for their own or other people's behaviour, as Herbert Hart would have said. And I think that begins to make mm -hmm. it more difficult for the leader who is not committed mm -hmm. to creating an inclusive community to actually keep it up. So one of the one of the problems that we face, I don't want to get stuck in politics, but we've got this huge problem in Australia at the moment that one of the worst examples in this area, one of the absolute worst examples, if not the worst example, is coming from federal politics. So if you want to talk about leadership and how that the, the nature of leadership and how that affects the individuals in an organization in terms of federal politics, we are at an extremely low point. We've still got a problem of gender imbalance in the parliament of quite, quite an extraordinary capacity. Let's just go to that question of how we change that. I think the UNDP said um, in the 90s that it takes 30% of representation in politics mm -hmm. to for women to have an effective voice in politics. What do we do about the lousy example that is being set in federal politics? Well, I, I mean, I've given my advice and mm -hmm. that is without a target quota, uh, what I call a temporary special measure, it will not shift. Because what a temporary special measure does is it firstly crystallises our intent. So our intent is we want a gender diverse party parliament, whatever it is. It crystallises our intent. It signals to the external environment and internally within the party that this is a priority for us. And not only that, we will then embark on a series of strategies, some of which will not work, um, and those ones we'll throw out quickly because we've still got our temporary special measure or our target. Um, those that do deliver, we're going to start investing in and ramping up more. And, um, you know, there's so many parliaments across the world. I look at it through my work with the UN. I have to say one of the most empowering moments for me in the work that I've done is when I was with the parliament in Pakistan. <coughs> I was in Islamabad. Um, and... Um, Islamabad or Karachi, I can't quite remember now, but I met there with what they call the Women's Parliamentary Caucus. Now, these were women from every different political party. Many of them had got there on reserved seats. And I was always a bit, mm, I don't know about these reserved seats because it'll be a male parliamentarian putting their wife up for a reserved seat and then telling her how to vote. But I went to their meeting and I saw that they all came together and said, well, what do we care about as women? Put the politics away. What do we care about as women? We want to live a life free from violence. We want an education for our children. You know, we want to eradicate poverty. So they basically went through a list of demands and these were women who, some of whom were wearing a full niqab. You know, they were women of all different pers political persuasions and when I left them, as one group, they were on their way to the Prime Minister with a list of demands from the women of a parliament that they wanted in their nation. And yes, Pakistan is, um, you know, in terms of gender equality is very low on the Gender Equality World Economic Forum's index. But to see that level of women coming across different parties together was very, very empowering. And I just have to say, Sarah, that we have a male champions of change Pakistan. Um, they're actually meeting this week and they're connecting also with the male champions of change in Australia. And it's just incredible to see some of the innovation that's happening in that nation and some of their desire and hunger for strategies which have delivered impact here in Australia, which may assist in delivering impact well, in Pakistan could, and back the other way. You could bring them back here to teach the Australian Parliament how to do it. Well, maybe. Because they need to know how to do it. You're probably right. You both raised the idea that uh, it's the idea of the speed of change, that uh, the debate in, in the stale parliament, <coughs> in the stale federal parliament, I'm sorry to keep going on about them, but they have be, it has the debate has become stale. What you're talking about is an enormous capacity for change by changing 
the, the, the culture, how it is expressed sometimes through media, but that in fact the community can move very fast. We saw it in the gay marriage debate that the community moved way ahead of politics, way ahead of um, any mechanism for achieving that change. The public was there long before politics was there. In terms of changing the culture and changing it fast and not getting bogged down in the shouty debates that we talked about at the beginning, how important is a reimagining of the family structure? I think the, the, fam, the family structure, I think it's just so very important. Um, and uh, at the minute, you know, in many families, um, there is this, you know, deep, um, I suppose, traditional gender roles. I mean, even Michael and I were talking about even so much as the sharing of unpaid work. I mean, we know here in Australia that that really hasn't shifted for many years, that the lion's share of unpaid work will be done by women. I always say if I was, as a sex discrimination commissioner, if I could have only done one thing to promote gender equality, it would have been the better sharing of paid and unpaid work between men and women. Why is it proving to be so such a recalcitrant problem? It's, I think it comes back to gender stereotyping, mm. This, um, which I would say outdated but obviously pervasive current view that there's certain work which is women's work and there's certain work that's men's work. And definitely the one of the prevailing um, social norms that we have in this nation is that um, you know caring for children, what we call the, uh, the um, ideal mother. So um, the ideal mother is someone who's always with her children. Now, she can be abusing, drinking, gambling, smoking. It doesn't really matter if she's with her children. Um, that's what what's the good mother looks like. And we know it's way more complex than that. So I think we need to break down some of these stereotypes. Um, and we need to recognise that sharing of paid and unpaid work, that's what creates resilient and robust and protective families. And indeed, you know, even just thinking of 10 years ago when I was on my listening tour all around Australia, talking to as many different types of families as I could, I think the families that had it best were lesbian mothers. They Each of them were sharing both work and care in a very equal way. Um, and, you know, the, the kids had access to two parents um, who both worked and cared. And, you know, there was a lot that was that we can take from all different types of families. But at the heart of it, there must be equality. Because without women's equality in the family, how can I leave an abusive relationship? How Michael, can I stay safe? Michael, let me just ask you about, about that. And if I can just slight, in, in a slightly personal way, you've did you understand all of this before you had big family and lots of children and all of those experiences, had you already got it miraculously or was it the family that enabled you to understand this the way you do now? So um, my mother um, always uh, worked outside our home and uh, was very successful in her career. So I suppose the notion that um, women should work outside the home or, or might work outside the home was not something that was foreign to me. But for me, um, I have a Christian faith and there is a, a passage in Paul where he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I think a husband and a wife or a, two partners of whatever kind they, in a healthy relationship, they're always submitting to one another. And that means saying in the work area, we have this task, this set of jobs at home, and we have these set of career aspirations, whatever they might be. Um, and I wouldn't want to say that a woman or a man can't decide to take time off paid employment to spend time um, working in their home. But we have this set of tasks and aspirations and we've got to think about how to make it fair for the benefit of um, our flourishing because that's what's going to help our children to flourish too. Um, and, and, and so for me it's about um, respect and fairness. Um, that said, I agree with Liz that I think... Um, you know, I used to, um, uh, 
iron my shirt each day before I um, went to work. Now my current job, I haven't done. I sent him out to a laundry, which is a terrible thing. True confession. Um, but it is a true confession. <laughs> um, but if ever we had a female visitor, oh, you got points for laundry. Um, washing. Not many men do the washing, like the washing machine washing. <laughs> um, men tend to cook, which is slightly more glamorous. And I have to say... Um, I have a sort of old-fashioned prejudice against my wife taking out the garbage, which I probably need to be a bit more new man about. Um, but <laughs> I'm so happy I th- to take out I the think, garbage, but I not think, do the vacuum. Yeah, my wife is about three foot tall, um, and the garbage bin is as tall as her. Um, but I think I think there is that there are definitely those gender stereotypes that we need to challenge in in thing. But I don't think you need to be radical about this. I think you just have to commit to our old-fashioned values of being fair um, in the family. just want to talk about the workplace for a minute, and, and I'm going to be personal too, because one of the things that I got completely wrong when I was working was that I brought up children working in a highly competitive environment. So Liz, in her early career as a lawyer, started talking about flexible working arrangements long before those words had become popular or fashionable. In my own working life, Mm. I failed. What I chose to do was to not talk about the fact that I was trying to bring up small children while doing an extremely difficult, competitive uh, job that involved a great deal of travel. I decided that... It was not for me to talk about the fact that I had children, that I would leave that aside and I would get on with my job and not talk about the fact that I needed my work to adapt to me. I made my family adapt to my work. It's only now, looking back, that I understand that I failed to see what you saw so early on, which is the reverse, that it's the work that has to change. So how fundamental and how quickly do we need to change the flexibility of contemporary working arrangements in Australia to arrive at this gender equal place where we all put the bins out, we all work when we want to work, we share the roles that Michael's talking about, and then the bigger roles of caring for families and children um, um, and older people as well. How important is flexible working arrangements and how radical in that space do we need to be? Well, I just think these two things go go together and I think that's where we've got to invite men into the conversation. You know, one of the reasons that some of the early feminist writers were, diff- were had trouble talking about childcare, for example, is because either you had to involve men or you involved collectivization or you involved oppressing other women in nanny roles. Um, but we've got to um, we've got to talk about flexible work at home, flexible work um, in in the thing and we've got to break down what so many feminist writers have recognized as the oppressive barrier between um, the public and the private. But it's hard. It's hard for men and for women. Um, you know, I did one of those 360-degree leadership shadow things. hope you did better than um, Michelle Guthrie did in her one for the ABC. <laughs> well, um, well, Famously. Well, this, this, this wasn't a performance one. I've done that too. But this uh, was a, this was a um, leadership shadow one about gender, right? And um, as a man, it's really – you have to be a bit careful about – talking about your children and your um, family because um, uh, women can think that you're kind of sort of patronising them or talking to them about your family because they're a woman. And, in fact, someone said it's a – a woman said in this thing, it's a barrier in my relationship with him that um, he talks about his children so much. My problem is I've got eight children and a busy job. So all I – I don't – I don't like go hiking. I don't watch movies. I don't go to fancy restaurants. I don't. All I do is children or work. So I have nothing else to talk about except work, and that's that's the thing where we've got to shift work for everybody, boys and girls, men and women, um, and whatever other genders um, you, you, you care to name, and. Um, we've got to make it okay to talk about your whole self at work too, both for men and women, so that if I say I've got to go and do school drop-off, half the room can't think, oh, he's so full of himself, and half the room think, oh, he's such a new man. Um, and, um, and if you say you've got to go and do school drop-off, half the room don't think, what an empowered woman, half the room think, oh, doesn't she take her job seriously? Mm. We've got to move beyond that. And that's why the guerrilla warfare in culture is so important. But I, I agree yeah. 100% um, with the idea that, yeah, uh, you know, they talk about the walk of shame, you know, leaving to pick up your daughter or your son or whatever. I just think if you don't have 
an all-roles-flex policy in, in your organisation today, you're just not a contemporary workplace. So how many, how um, many workplaces in Australia have that? Do you well, know? I think it's emerging as a norm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it will be implemented in a, um, to a greater or lesser extent, just to let everyone know what an all-roles-flex workplace is. This is where I don't have to ref- uh, request a flexible work arrangement. The fact is flexibilities are given. The role of a supervisor is to work out with me what level of flexibility can work in this this particular role. So, um, and, you know, in the command and control environments, in, you know, just even looking in the the aviation industry, some industries are more difficult. But in knowledge-based industries, that should be, you know, not that difficult to actually achieve. And I think... How do you achieve that? Well, you have it start at the leadership level. And to be honest, often when the CEO, yes, they're working long hours, but they're working where and when they choose to. So they have a level of flexibility and control, but someone further down the chain doesn't have. So it's about delivering flexibility and control back to individuals and also talking about, you know, what's messy, what, you know, all the things across your whole life, which brings me back to my more humanity, less intellect approach. And and you you mentioned earlier on, just at the beginning, you talked about some of the lag in some industries, so the aviation mm. industry you just mentioned, but you mentioned the military and so on. Mm. Now, in the United States, for example, the military became a huge um, um, mover for change in changing the, uh, the cultural diversity in the American military, in part because of race problems in mm. the American military in the 70s. Now, that's a rigid organisation that used its hierarchy to force through really dramatic change in, in terms of diversity in the officer class. Um, can you imagine something like that here, that they would go to the lengths that the American military did to make a cultural change in the organisation over a very short space of time? Do we have the capacity here to see that kind of, not the built change, um, the slow cultural change that we can do, but at an organisational level. Yeah, look, I actually think the Australian military are doing that. Mm. I mean, when I look at the data, I worked with the military from, say, 2011 through to about 2015. During that time, I saw the um, recruitment of women um, increase significantly. Uh, Just to give you an idea, I think today the army recruit and 20% of their recruits are female. When I went in, it was about 11%. So um, Air Force and Navy, I know they're shooting to get to around 35 or 40% of those services um, to be women. And yes, we haven't seen our first chief of the Defence Force or the first chief of any of the services um, a, a female, but I'm sure we'll see a deputy chief and then on to a chief very, very shortly. Not only that, we're seeing women in every aspect. So the whole military has now opened up um, for for women. And that's something that's only happened recently. So I, I think the military and because it's a hierarchical structure, which is often a bad thing, it actually plays to a good mm. thing in, in these types of arrangements. So when are we going to see the first female Vice-Chancellor of Sydney University? It's a good question. <laughs> um, it's, Who should I uh, apply to for uh, the answer? It's, it's a good, um, perhaps the female Chancellor, um, and the last mm-hmm. Chancellor was, of course, um, uh, 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 a female Chancellor as well. Um, but uh, um, at such a point as I got my shoes, I hope we might find a female vice chancellor. Yeah, I have to say, I did ask some friends what what who who work at Sydney Uni, and they shall of course remain nameless. What um, what questions I should ask? And one of them said, "Well, shouldn't the vice chancellor give up his position to a woman?" And I thought that's a bit tough. Well, so um, so <laughs> um, just. Um, last year, um, uh, someone stood up and said with a great degree of cynicism, I have to say, it was just surprising because it wasn't a cynical person. Um, uh, and we will know that there is some move towards gender equality in this um, university when we have a female dean of medicine. Um, and what I knew but that person didn't know was that we'd already appointed a female dean <laughs> of um, medicine and health. Um, and uh, so, so change happens. Yes. And that's, that's the thing, isn't it? I used to teach feminist jurisprudence in Oxford and it was kind of interesting because you were always encouraging and discouraging the students. So some would say, oh, change never happens. It's all just being, it's all the, just all men, no matter how you think. And you say, hang on, hang on. hundred years ago, women couldn't vote. Um, um, and they um, couldn't married women couldn't have property until something like the 1970s. If you got married and you're a woman at the University of Sydney, you had to resign. 
Right? That's within my lifetime. Mm. Um, you had to resign from your job because you were a woman and got married. Um, the change has been enormous. And other students would say, yeah, there's no big deal now. It's all just talent. You're just whether men or women, men and women would say this. And you'd think, eh, no, that's not true. <laughs> um, look at the statistics. Think about the enormous amount of way we have to go in culture. And I think that's the point. It's about always being in the way that I know Liz is. Sort of glass half full and glass half empty at the same yeah, time. I, I categorise it as living between despair and hope. We have to make a life somewhere in between. Yes. Um, that's what we're up to. So for, that's Michael. where we're up to. So um, I'd like to thank Liz and Michael for everything that they brought to the conversation. I know we could keep listening to them for a very long time. I like the idea that hypocrisy is is a good thing. <laughs> I'd say there's a whole um, there's a whole philosophical movement about it, and it is kind of true. If have you noticed? that since people have been able to say recently outrageous, um, sexist and racist things in a way that wasn't possible 10 years ago, the whole conversation is shifting to the icky. Um, there's a point in good manners. There is a point. He also talked um, eloquently about vulnerability, which I think yeah. was um, an excellent thing to hear from someone in Michael Spence's position. And if any of you are students here at the university, I think that it's a particularly mm. um, precious thing to hear from someone with the power that Michael technically wields. And mm. to Liz, thank you for everything that you brought to the conversation, all of your observations from the international sphere and that extraordinary combination of seeing and picturing for us a new world that we could inhabit and that we could race to quite fast. We can get to that gender equal world if we all do it ourselves and don't wait for legislation to make it happen. We need legislation, we need the laws, but we need each of us energetic and a warrior, as Yvonne said earlier, to make it happen. Thank you, everybody. The terrific thing about Liz is she's interested in the opinions of rank amateurs lately, <laughs> even though she knows what she's we talking about. We wish Michael a happy journey tomorrow. Thank you all for coming out. I hope you've enjoyed it. We have. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.